Hello and welcome to another adventure here at Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, leading through the corridors of this dungeon, one Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, do you feel safe back there? Uh, no, not after this weekend because I ran Shadow Dark and, and it was a bloodbath, murdering everybody with a uh, level zero gauntlet. And so on a future show, we'll have to talk all about that and, and what I learned because I'm still learning from the experience and the trauma. <laughs> yep. Yeah, in our main uh, topic today, we are going to take a step back from from uh, from that wonderful game, and we are going to talk about world building. Uh, but obviously, in this segment, we like to do our listener corner. So let's hit those tweets and toots and and missives and emails, starting with Graham Ward via our Patreon Discord. What are the best ways to support faction interplay from both a system and a scenario perspective? What have you tried that got players invested and active in their relationships to the campaign's factions? Ooh. And yeah, this is a this is a toughie. The first thing that I like to do is figure out my group's tolerance for the world and things happening outside of their small bubble. See, that that's why you're a nice DM, because you, you immediately are like, what do my players want? Versus my first question was, what am I trying to do as GM with factions? Mm -hmm. So that, that's fun, but continue. I just wanted to add that little, such a yeah. different perspective. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's the same thing. It's just from two different directions, right? Yeah. One is, what's the range I'm working within? And I want to push them to where I want to be. Yeah. But that push needs to be controlled. It needs to be experimented with. If you just jump right to what you want, yeah. maybe it's fine. And maybe they'll just jump right there with you. But they might not. But if you know that they're not quite there. So what do I mean by tolerance? So... If their tolerance is low, it means that they want to be the main drivers of the action for the most part. Mm -hmm. And they don't care much about what happens outside of this path that they are looking toward. Uh, doesn't mean a railroad. It just means that they right. are going after these goals and what's between them and their goals is what they care about. And so if they do care about what is in their path, or what's slightly down the line, mm -hmm. they might not care about the machinations of factions until those factions are in their path. So what I like to do then is keep the faction number down, or at least the number that I'm working with. I'll have one faction who the characters are working with or working for. So they care about them because they are providing the goal or they are in, in alignment with the goals of the characters. Mm -hmm. Faction two will be the enemy. They are the ones working against the characters, and the characters either know that or are about to learn that. And maybe I'll add a third faction that's sort of a wild card. I can use it in different ways. Mm -hmm. If I can keep them interested, most players that I've dealt with over the years, if I can keep them interested in three factions, I think I've done my job. <laughs> Now, uh, it's best then to have a faction represented by an NPC, maybe just one. Yeah, put a face on it. Who can then speak for and react to the characters in a way that the characters will know exactly what that faction feels about them. 
oh, the, the leader of the Harpers in your area is this NPC. If they're mad at you, the Harpers are mad at you. If they love what you're doing, the Harpers love what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Keep it. Keep it simple. And, and just to, uh, to make that. Go ahead. And I added a little example of like, you know, if you think about the D&D movie, right, if you view the Harpers through the lens of the main, you know, Chris Pine's character, right, who is kind of has left the Harpers, right? You know, like, yeah, they're, they do good, but I wasn't, I couldn't meet those standards and here's how I see that group, right? And that's a very different lens that, than if you choose a, a you know, died in the wool Harper who's super excited or a, you know, I'm always assuming different identities, spy kind of Harper, right? So you can, you can hit that, that choice of who your face is will be the window into the world, even if, and it, and it is a slanted window into the world, which you get to control. Mm-hmm. And th- that's what you can do if your player's tolerance of <laughs> things going on out there is high. Yeah. Then you can start having people within a faction or representing a faction be at odds with each other. You can deepen that world. You can deepen that story. You can bring in those elements that may not affect the character's directly at first, but show the rise and fall of things outside of their story. And you always want to try to loop it back into their story if, if yeah. possible. But then you have uh, a little bit more room, more tolerance. Um, so what, what were your just overall thoughts? Yeah, so we did, I tend to th- start thinking of it in my very selfish way of like, you know, what, what do I want? Why am I putting a, a faction in, in here? And what, what's the point of it, right? And sometimes it's you have these high goals like politics and whatever. And that's where absolutely like you need to ask yourself to my players, are they even going to care? Are they even going to get involved in this? Because a lot of times like, you know, ooh, Game of Thrones intrigue sounds so fun when you're reading the book, but really mm-hmm. trying to get players into that. And there are a lot of things that, that, that are easy to stumble upon. Like if each player is a different faction, that's hard unless you really let the world play off of that. And, and 13th Age is what I'd go to as a go-to for that because 13th Age shows you how to make these stories ratchet between factions. And another game that does that is, is Arcanus, right? And we had the Living Arcanus um, organized play program during the third edition days that did a really interesting job of creating factions where, you know, one party of adventurers could be at odds in the final scene, really like emotional about what should be done as a choice and, and fighting each other, PVP kind of things even, right? It could go to excellent yeah. marker heroes you worked on or the Ebron campaign yeah. had some factions. Yeah. Cedric Expeditions was the one where there were, it was one campaign, but it was actually four campaigns and each faction there was the good guys, there was the evil folk, <laughs> there was the militaristic uh, mercenary group, and then there was mine, the Crimson Codex, which was like this mysterious, out there, weird prophecy-driven <laughs> uh, amalgam of things. And so if you played in one of those factional adventures, you were part, your character was part of those factions, and you all worked together to, to tell your story. But then you could have an adventure, a special adventure where different faction members could play together as a party Uh and go off and do things. And what we learned very quickly was when you do that, even if you don't set the characters directly at odds, 
players are going to find a way to make their own tension. <laughs> and some people think it's, think it's fun and think yeah. it's, oh, we're role playing and let's show. And the other people have absolutely no tolerance for even joking yeah. about having a conflict between players and the party. And it, it was fun for some groups, those interfaction adventures. For others, it was just plain painful. And I yeah. could I saw tables where, you know, five players part of one faction would just gang up on the, the <laughs> other player and the other faction. And it just, it wasn't fun. Yeah. Um, and Pathfinder so. worked to, to refine that further, right? Because they took those ideas, and then when they launched their campaign, they, they used a faction system. And then later AL, right, Adventurers League started mm -hmm. with factions. And, and I think that's what I'm kind of to kind of bring it back full circle, right? When you start and you say, okay, I want to bring in some factions, like what's the point, right? And like in Adventurers League, it was a sort of a way to group and color NPCs is really what ended up mm -hmm. happening, right? That if you get a mission from the Zentarum, well, you kind of know the tone of where this is going to go. If you get a mission, Mission yep. from the Lord's Alliance, you know what that's gonna come, you know, where and that it, and, and so it lends itself to sort of a vehicle for storytelling and a way that the players can sort of tag a thing, right? They can, oh yeah, I know what's going mm -hmm. on here. It's a Harper mission. We're probably gonna get rid of some evil artifact or whatever. It's the Emerald Enclave, you know, we're fighting an incursion into a forest. That makes sense, right? And that can be good just on its own. It doesn't have to go deep. When you really get into factions, a lot of times folks are looking at that sort of like somehow there are choices and there are different sides and there's intrigue. And that's where you want to think carefully about that, what, what you can really do to support it. And I think where a lot of games go wrong, we were talking about this on our Discord, is if you don't actually do that supportive work, it falls apart because what else is there? The actual adventure you're running, right? The, the dungeon, yeah. the monsters, the campaign, the backstory of the characters. Like if, if you're not giving it that emphasis, it will fall apart. And that makes it fail and makes it hard to run, right? That's a perfect, you know, that's great. That's perfect is you can think that the politics of something is going to carry the story unless it's a very, 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 very specific kind of player. Like 1% of the RPG audience will be like all about that intrigue. You better make the adventure fun. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, one, one place that you can check out is Dungeons of Drakenheim, which mm -hmm. just went up on D&D Beyond not too long ago. They do a great job with factional intrigue and factional conflict without having the players actually join a faction. Mm -hmm. But these factions are all sort of working toward similar goals, but also opposing each other. And so you as the player and as the party sort of have to ally with a different faction at different times in order to move forward. So it adds it adds something uh, factional to the campaign without, it brings it in front of the players really well yeah. uh, to make it mean something to the players, to make those choices yeah. really mean yeah. something. And in the show notes, I have a YouTube video with mm. Uh, the dungeon dude's talking about using factions in in that campaign and it's it's really good stuff so yeah. uh, you can check that out and, and uh, you know recently we've talked about the pelgrane press blog uh they've had some really nice articles about how to use the factions in 13th age um another mm -hmm. thing i'll share just really quickly is when i ran a dark sand campaign uh, as a home game one time um, we went to the city of Ram, which is full of these sort of like noble houses fighting one another and, and contrast with the kind of loose government. And so I had a, a scene and, and, and my point here is 
think about what your scenes and encounters do to kind of bring those factions front and center. And so they were wanted to go to this one villa to speak to a particular noble house. When they arrive, three other groups are attacking and that makes them choose. You can't fight everybody. So who are you going to form up with? And they're essentially getting right. like job offers, alliance offers in the middle of the combat. And they're like, no, not this group. No, <laughs> you know, like, and, and having to figure out what they know about them. And, and but they had to pick. Right. And so that's a way to force that action, make it underscore, you know, how much conflict there is in this city, but still move forward in very adventure fashion and the kind of play mm -hmm. that everybody liked. There you go. Thank you for that, Graham. And now Big Bunky via YouTube asks, I recently jumped into a long running 5e campaign as a guest for a couple of sessions. One of the players was struggling with the rules and mechanics, and it was a bummer to see the dynamic it created. The other players were frustrated and the player's confidence and enjoyment seemed to be crushed. What advice do you have from a DM or fellow player's perspective on helping out a player that's struggling with the mechanics? Cheers. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really, I wanted to ask some follow-up questions uh, because I'm, I'm having trouble envisioning walking into a session where one player was having trouble and the other players weren't helping, but were frustrated by it. Yeah. And I've been, I've known gamers who would absolutely be this, you know, either the person who was having trouble or those frustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, but my answer is going to be like the, the one word answer we give to every question we get, which is communicate. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my, that's my first answer. Uh, was the DM doing anything to help the situation or make it worse? Were the other players doing anything to help the situation or make it worse? What was the frustrated or what was the you know, player whose confidence and enjoyment were being crushed? What were they actually doing that was frustrating other people? Mm. Uh, without those sorts of granular details, it's hard to come up with a perfect solution, but we can come up with some suggestions based on the question. Uh, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had this come up a couple of times. And one easy example to, to parse is when you have kids, uh, because mm -hmm. kids will do things like play a cleric and forget that they can cast spells ever. So there's no mm -hmm. healing. There's no, you know, guiding bolt. There's no any of that. Right. And they're just attacking with their mace <laughs> and round after round. And they're perfectly happy to do so. And they're like, oh, yeah. And, and you might point it out and they go, oh, yeah, forget about my spells. And then they attack with their mace again. Right. And that just sort of happens. And 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 I think probably in, in a campaign, I probably had half the players are sort of that way. Right. And then you have one who like DMs who is like, come on everyone let's you know let's pick it up you know and oh that's a blah monster i can tell you it's ac right and so it mm -hmm. you can have that kind of tension that's just folks are on a different page the other thing that can happen is somebody who just says you know i want to have an rpg experience and the communal experience of sitting at the table but when i look at this rule book it makes my eyes bleed and so I'm trying to do what I can, but there is no way I'm going to be like you folks who know all this stuff in and out and play your character well. That's just not going to happen. So even if you help me at the table or explain, 
I'm unlikely to get to a point where I do things efficiently. In both of those, one of the things that I do as a DM is I pull the difficulty back. Mm -hmm. Because that's realistically what we're talking about is, you know, one or more players are acting a little more like henchmen than they are as, you know, fully capable seasoned adventures that, you know, you calculate CR against. And so, you know, that's one thing, but, but it's tough. It's really tough. And I've lost players in that kind of second situation. And, And I don't know exactly what to do because it's sort of a mismatch other than like play a different game where there's a much flatter mastery level right um yeah it's really hard because you you just you want people who want the experience but don't want to be doing that work of understanding all their subclass benefits and the feed interaction and the spells and i don't know if there's a whole lot one can do about it except just not be you know accept it if you want to play with this person you're going to have to accept it because they're probably not going to master it if it's that situation right if what they need is training wheels you can go back and spend some time one-on-one to get them up to speed but if they're just not going to make turn that corner then that's what it is yeah and and that's that's an important question right was the was the one player feeling crushed because they weren't doing as much damage as the other players mm-hmm. or were they feeling crushed because they didn't understand something right all of those things can be worked on in different ways um what i would do is make sure that the player who's confident in enjoyment were being crushed understood the one thing their character is best at mm-hmm. And say if if in doubt, right? If if they're having analysis paralysis, or or yeah. if they just don't know what we're doing, if all else fails, do this. Yeah. Help them build their character to do that. Uh, take away all the choices. Take away all those things that are causing play to yeah. not gel, and just say for right now. Hit it with your sword mm-hmm. as often and as hard as you can. Yeah, and maybe they... It'll be you know, great. One of the things that happens, like I think a, a very sort of fascinating, hilarious, many words could be used here, uh, aspects of 5e's design is the design of the warlock. The warlock mm-hmm. appeals to a broad range of folks who often come to it with the ooh, the pack, the story, the whatever. And then it's really complicated. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the mechanics of it, especially certain builds are really complex and you really want to understand all these things. And there's so many parts to it. That's a terrible class to pick if you're that kind of player. And so sometimes you have to sit down and and a possible thing is to sit down and say, do you want to try out a simpler character where it would be a lot easier right? the champion fighter? And we can reskin it or something like that. So it feels Mm warlocky. Right. You could give it that kind of story, you know, or whatever it is that you wanted out of the original class you chose, but that it doesn't rely on subclass choices and menus and feats and things to be effective right that that could be really good yeah the last point i'll bring up is have the have the player say narratively what they want their character to do instead of looking at the character sheet and trying to figure out the best combination of this and that have the have the player say what i really want to do is distract the Mm -hmm. the monster run behind it and stab it okay let's then go through the rules for what that means Mm -hmm. so you're finding what the player wants and you're teaching to a player 
directly to what they want to do as opposed to throwing different options at them that they may not even want or understand. And then once you have that conversation a few times, not just once, but a few times, what do you want to do? Then A, you know what the player wants. You can help them rebuild a character to do the things that they want to do. And yeah, they begin to learn on their own terms as opposed to your terms, which they may not even be able yeah. to comprehend. I think for a lot of players, it's, it can be very overwhelming, the, the kind of difference, juxtaposition between what you want to do with your character and then those things on the character sheet and the the section of the character sheet that actually is about that, and then all the other stuff in the character sheet, those three things are really confusing, right? When you think of like, mm-hmm. I want to be a warlock that, you know, bounces around and talks about their pact uh, and, and their relationship with the pact essence, and then I want to do these kinds of tricksy, fun, magical things. Then I look at my character sheet, and the part that does that is really complicated. And then there's all mm-hmm. these other words surrounding it and I get completely lost. And so maybe yep. if, if that is the kind of situation, you, you might be able to kind of recreate the character sheet, like make essentially power cards, right? That are like, mm-hmm. Here, here's your at will stuff that you do. Here are the fun things you like to do and, and just kind of recolor it, rename it, retheme it so that it would be easier to run. Yeah. And also so that you can say to them like, and then forget about all that junk and just do what you like you were saying, say what you're trying to do and we'll work with it. But you, you want to have some solid options, right? Like at some point you got to do an attack action. What, what will it be? Mm-hmm. It'll probably be this or that. And every, yep. you know, once a fight, do this thing <laughs> until you run out. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So thank you for those questions. We look forward to your questions in future episodes. Now we're going to get into our news and commentary section. And I want to start with a personal plea, if you will, Uh, a project that is near and dear to my heart right now that we are currently working on is called Surviving Strange Hollow. It will go to Kickstarter on Tuesday, March 5th, and you can become a VIP by going to get get dot accidental cyclops.com that's the publishing company that's working on the project and it would mean the world to me if you would at least check it out and we're actually going to talk about world building in the second part of the show and we'll bring up surviving strange hollow as well as some other worlds and other projects that Taos and i have worked on to look at world building But we're going to get right to the news and commentary now, starting with sad news. If you speak or read or use Portuguese in your D&D games, Teos, what's the news there? (laughs) Well, Wizards announced on the D&D Beyond site, where apparently all announcements now take place, that the company will no longer print products in the Portuguese language. And the biggest impact of this is Brazil, which if you look at a map is quite large. Uh, Also, if you follow historic trends, there are a ton of gamers in Brazil who play. Uh, There are certainly some in Europe as well, but there are a ton of active gamers in Brazil. It's a long-standing uh, a group there that, that has been active in organized play of all kinds and D&D organized play. Uh, so it's really a huge shame from that perspective. And D&D at least did a nice part in it that they tried to speak to the why of it. And they said, mm-hmm. sales have not kept pace with rising costs. 
and they're going to print three planned books that, you know, when I say these, you'll go, oh, wow, they're behind. Fizzbands, Radiant Citadel, and Dragonlance. So they had planned on doing those. Those must be in progress of being translated, printed, etc. So those will come out, and then that will be it. D&D uh, mm -hmm. is currently printed in the remaining languages of English, French, German, Italian, Japanese, and Spanish. And as you can see from that schedule, not all countries get things at the same time. That was something that they tried to do before. Uh, and in fact, they took the license out of the hands of Gale Force 9's contractors and kind of took it on with this idea of we're going to print everything on the same schedule. That doesn't really seem to have happened. Um, and, and what's behind this, Sean, is I think two things. One is the difficulty of localization, right? Like make a book on this really tight schedule. Oh, and by the way, have it all translated. That's a really tough goal. Second thing is make a $60, $70 product in the US that somebody in Brazil is gonna buy. When their economy, that means that's like a sixth or more of their monthly income to buy that book, right? So you're replacing all kinds of things that a person needs to spend money on to buy that. That is a really big ask, and it's why in South America we've often had a culture of piracy uh, because it's just an, an impossible ask, the pr pricing-wise, right? It'd be like say, hey, yeah. go support your local movie theater. It'll cost you $200 to go see that movie. You'd say, mm -hmm. I don't think so, right? And that's yeah. kind of what that feels like. And so, you know, what this says to me is, is it's part of a bigger question of how D&D markets internationally. We've talked about this before on the show, and there's clearly a real need for some sort of larger solution here. Uh, step one, I would say, is basic rules should be free, which they already are, but translated and available on D&D Beyond to start drawing people into that concept of being part of the ecosystem and think about buying smaller things for it if they're already using the free rules. But, but the larger question of selling things, you have to figure out how to break down that difference in economies. Yeah. I can't say it any better than that. Well, it's out of Brazil, but it's on Broadway or it's on off Broadway. <laughs> the first ever officially licensed theatrical adaptation of D&D &D will open off Broadway in New York City on May 5th. Wow. What is this? It, this is called the 20 sided tavern. It will be set in the Forgotten Realms, and the audience will get to make decisions. So no two shows will be alike, and audience members may also get brought up on stage to test their ability scores. Uh, what do you great. think, Teos? I think that's great. Uh, I, I looked up the article, which we link in our show notes, and, and uh, it, it sounds like a lot of fun. I, I want to go to New York City and, and have an excuse to watch this show, because that, that looks great. Yeah, there there have been a few uh, plays mm -hmm. uh, that have brought D and D in. I they, during COVID, the local college um, did. What is the name of that? Something monster. Yeah, she um, monsters. She she kills monsters. She kills monsters. She slays monsters. Something like that. Yeah, and uh, they did it online. Oh, cool. know, when COVID, and so and it was really really it was really cool. It was really. It's not a funny um, no, it's, yeah. play. I mean, it's it has got some, some serious parts, but yeah. dark, but there are funny parts to it. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm interested in, in, we always talk about D&D &D movie and the D&D &D TV show, yeah. but you know, how 
other parts of our entertainment and our media use D&D is interesting. And this being a licensed uh, yeah. Yeah, that's Project. what makes it like She Kills Monsters yeah. is, is unofficial. And it's obvious. It right. deals with Orcus and things like that. And not that Orcus is solely D&D, but, you know, it deals with very obviously D&D properties. And, and it's great. We, there was a production that ran here and my daughter was in that. Um, and I helped the local group with that. It's super fun. But this is truly like we are licensing the ability to do this and, 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 and mm-hmm. making it a real, you know, off Broadway production. And so that would be great to go see. Yeah, it would be. Road trip, Tails. Road trip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here we go. Next, uh, second edition is coming of which game? Star, Star Trek, Trek Adventures. Yes. Uh, I this just came into my email like an hour ago. Um, I went to the Modifius site. I have not seen it anywhere else. So you're getting it secondhand first here. <laughs> They are making a second edition, and it says, while Star Trek Adventures second edition's core mechanics have been streamlined, they remain fundamentally the same as the first edition, so a 2D20 system. It'll just have snappier and smoother play. Combat, ship management, character creation, and complex task mechanics have all spent some time in dry dock and have been upgraded to the latest Starfleet protocols. <laughs> Refined, refreshed, and ready for your new explorations. So we're going to get an update in the streamlining of this 2D20 system for an authentic Star Trek experience. It will still be compatible with 1E supplements and books, according to this email. And... Also, adding to the worlds of Star Trek you can play in, you can already play in many of the worlds, including Lower Decks. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're a fan of that cartoon, you can now also include Star Trek Prodigy and Star Trek Strange New Worlds as part of your play experience. This is all coming to you for a premiere at Gen Con this year, which is a very short turnaround. So they must have been working on this a while. And in the fall, they will also launch a new starter set with much more to follow. Very cool. And you've written for Star Trek Adventures in the past, which is awesome. I did. It's a fun game. I'm. If I was going to say anything about it, I would say, you know, it needs to be streamlined a little bit. <laughs> and uh, so here we go. We'll see how uh, how changes to the 2D20 system, if it's really changes to the system or just changes to how they're using the system, which would mean it's still mm-hmm. compatible mm-hmm. with uh, previous products. Yeah. Let's, let's jump into some creator and pr- crowdfunding news, starting with the Diana Jones Award. Um, they are now accepting submissions for the Emerging Designer Award. Are you an emerging designer or do you know one? This program focuses on amplifying the voices of up-and-coming designers with a focus on creators from marginalized communities. You can either nominate yourself or someone else before midnight of April 2nd. We have a link to the form and a link for more information t- about this award. Yeah, very cool. Tell us about uh, tell us about Schwalb Entertainment, what they're up to. Yeah, well, Rob has released Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which is the sort of less uh, gory, dark, gross version of uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, which we talked about on the show and talked to Rob about. Uh, and and it's it's. Uh, 
I'm hearing great things about it. I have, I backed this. I have the PDFs. I have had zero moments to look at it. So it is, I'm going to have a trip soon. And, and that's one of the things that I'll be reading on the trip. Um, but if you did not back the campaign, you can get the PDF as well. So you can go to schwabentertainment.com. You'll see all the links there. It's on drive through So you can take a look at that. And we've already had a couple people say that we should talk about this on the show. Um, you know, I, I want to wait till everything is delivered from the, um, the campaign. But uh, that sounds actually absolutely awesome because I, I, we have learned so much from the design of Shadow of the Demon Lord and comparing that to 5e. Uh, I look forward to learning a lot from this uh, game, both as a GM and a, and a designer. So, yeah. Absolutely. We also have five new classes for an old school basic game. Uh, it's called BX5. Raging Owlbear has a Kickstarter. They're simpler 5e classes in the basic and expert D&D style. They might be slightly weaker in power deliberately, but they're still fun and they're easy to run. So that goes back to the yeah. question we had Perfect. earlier. Um, so the goal is excitement over the cool thing you get each level rather than getting lost in a bunch of features. That is on Kickstarter until March 20th and it has not hit funding yet. So it could definitely use your help. And last but not least, Teos, I will let you bring this home. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, this is, you know, something we're going to try to cover last week, which is just the reporting that Ian World did on Evil Genius Games. And we're not going to talk about it in detail because we're, we're not close to it, though we know people who are. Um, but Ian World did a really good job of doing their own investigative reporting and interviewing employees, a number of employees from Evil Genius Games, both current employees, uh, staff, uh, owners, and people who had departed uh, and on how a number of employees have left and they've made accusations about a number of problems, problematic and abusive work environments, not getting paid, uh, an emphasis on crypto AI and selling customer data. So our hearts go out to every employee affected by this and freelancers have had this situation at either Evil Genius Games or other places. Uh, you can read the full article. It's a really uh, impressive read, uh, difficult at times. Um, and, and good. I mean, it's, this is the kind of spotlight we do have to share, shed sometimes or shine sometimes on problems in the industry so that everybody else gets it again, that this is not okay to do these kinds of things, right? And so, mm -hmm. so uh, ho hopefully it brings some improvements to our industry. Yeah. The only thing I'm going to add is, uh, in, in addition to, you know, our hearts going out to the employees and, and those people who have the unicorn of a full-time job in the role-playing game industry only to have the horn torn off of that unicorn it's it's a sad uh it's a sad thing to see but it also shows that this is a complicated business mm -hmm. because originally we were reporting on evil genius games because of what netflix did to that yeah. right and you know, there was the outpouring of support for Evil Genius and how dare this big company do this thing. Great. And we also have to remember that there's always something going on behind the scenes mm -hmm. that may or may not be what you expect or what you would want. Uh, so even as we were cheering on Evil Genius Games in this dispute with Netflix, we were also having this stuff happen that, yeah. uh, you know, definitely shouldn't have. So uh, it's yeah, great point. 
always interesting to keep an eye and an open mind about all of this. Well said. This week, building an RPG world. Whew. So why now with this topic? <laughs> Here's why. So for years as a younger player, I would GM different games. I would always build my own worlds. Rarely did I play in Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or, or Dark Sun or Ravenloft. I would just make my own. When I started freelancing in 2001, I started working within well-established worlds on official Wizards products, right? Living Greyhawk. Yeah. Forgotten Realms many, many times. Eberron, Dark Sun, even Nentir Vale and Ravenloft <laughs> and some of, the, some of the smaller ones. Since going full-time freelance, I've gotten to do both. I've gotten to build my own and work within existing ones. So Midgard from Cobalt Press I got to work with. Uh, then I started helping create worlds with Ghostfire and Grim Hollow. Um, Aurora was built, built on a world I had created long ago. The Ethereal Expanse is something that James Hake had a large uh, part in building. Uh, Drakenheim I got to touch on. And now I'm moving into uh, places like Strange Hollow. And so world building is a question we get all the time. And I just covered it in my role-playing game writing class. And what I'm coming to find is there is no single bit of great advice or even a set of tips that are reliable that covers everything that you need to know about world building. Uh, because it's such a large topic and there are many different facets to it, whether it's for a role-playing game or, or a movie or for a book. Um, I, I've poured through how-to manuals and <laughs> books out there, and they all tend to sort of be D&D-focused. Hmm. And even as they're D&D-focused, they are very slanted to the opinions and the tastes of the person writing about it. Hmm. One person will go on and on and on about the importance of this one piece, which for me means absolutely nothing in any of the worlds I've ever built and don't even care about, <laughs> which just goes to show how one person's important thing is another person's dross. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, building a Pantheon is like this mainstay of world building yeah. stuff. And it's like, okay, it may be important in D&D, Maybe, but it's not important in any like futuristic cyberpunk games, probably. Um, mm -hmm. And even if they do, it tends to be Eurocentric or, you know, ignoring large parts of culture or stepping on large parts of culture. It's it's so hard to to do. So after, having said that, we're going to try to do exactly what I said not to do, which is give you tips <laughs> um, or at least the basics of world building. What do you think, Teos? I, I think it's super interesting. I'm I'm very attracted to this topic. Uh, I remember one time I was asked if I, I wanted to be on a panel for world building, and I thought, no, <laughs> because it, you know it isn't a thing that I've truly done, uh, other than when I was much younger. And and like you, I've spent most of my time, especially recently, uh, working with other people's worlds. And because of that, my skills have been how to understand what the objective was, cut through the clutter of what's often in source books, 
and figure out how to make it good, right? So that it's fun and, and feels real, which is very hard. Um, but I haven't had to build it, which you've recently, you know, in the last however many years, you've been working on that actual, like, constructed whole cloth and put it together. And, and, uh, and I definitely, so I want to learn from, from that in this session and then throw in my questions and, and, and thoughts around it. Sounds good. So let's talk about world building basics. And this is true whether you're writing a story, building a world for a fiction, a game, role-playing game, comic book, whatever. You need to understand that for most of these things, you are creating a world with words. So even if you are writing a story, I'm just going to write a short story, and I'm going to set it in our world, in our current time, what you are doing is still building a world mm -hmm. because everybody's viewpoint is different. Everyone's world is different. My world is different than Teos's world, is different than the world that you listening are in right now. So when you create this setting, when you create this world, the only thing that you have if you're writing a story are words. If you have comic books or movies, you can use visuals, which are super helpful but often you don't have that luxury or that luxury a lot hmm. for like a role-playing game book. You can include art, absolutely. But most of it building is done through words. So take care with those words. Hmm. Uh, think about those words and remember that you are not just describing something, but you are actually building the world. Yeah. So are you saying then, how does one care for the words? Is it by thinking about the audience? Is it by, like, how do you shape that? You, you, yes, the answer is yes to all of the questions <laughs> that you were about to ask. Uh, you have to put, you just have to keep in mind mm -hmm. that the world that you live in, that you think you are describing, is not the same world as everyone else. Yeah. And you always have to go back and make sure you're using those words in a way that continues to reinforce this world. Hmm. The next bit of advice is good, but not. And I, not about the advice we're gonna give, but the, the advice that's given to writers, which is show, don't tell. Hmm. For beginning writers, this is great advice. It helps reinforce the fact that you want to draw the reader in, and it's often better to draw the reader in by showing a, a, a point rather than telling a point. Mm -hmm. Because showing draws people in where telling can keep people at a distance. Yeah. However, the more advanced you get in your writing, the better advice is don't show and tell. Hmm. Because sometimes you have to tell. Oftentimes the best choice is to tell. For clarity's sake, for efficiency, especially in world building, it's okay to say to the reader, there are nine gods in this world those nine gods represent A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Mm -hmm. Boom. Now the reader knows this, and you can build from that 
going on to now show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you try to take the time and the energy to show all of that information that you could just say, uh -huh. that you could just tell, you could lose people in the minutia of something that they need to know quickly and efficiently, assuming that those nine gods are involved in, right. you know, the building of the world and the plots that are coming out of it. And is, is uh, so, so and this is like, if tell me if I'm on the right track, where if I think yeah. of a lot of like older, like second edition source books for D&D, they will mm -hmm. give you these huge lore dumps of the history of the everything. And mm -hmm. to me, that's like, that's where I, I would love to replace that with just give me the key things that I should you do with this, these factions or entities or whatever. Exactly. The, the most recent books, we always get that bulleted list at the front, right? The world is blank, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Life is blank mm -hmm. and it tells you it does not showing yeah, that's you true. Yeah. through through description, yeah. through stories, through poems. Right. Right. It's just saying this is this. Right. right. And so, you know, you've been told and now examples can be given. Mm -hmm. But you as the person who is going to be building the stories in which this you have Total. those touch points. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by don't show and tell tell yeah. when you need to. Mm -hmm. um, especially for a role play game. Yeah. The, the next bit of advice is details matter unless they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so details are important to draw people into the world, right? There are little things that sh can show uh, how life, what life is like, little details. Mm -hmm. However, you always have to think of the importance of these details in the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. So you have the world here, you have the story here, and unless the, the story is going to somehow intertwine with the world, you can leave that part of the world out of your... Mm -hmm. So for example, a character walks into a tea house and you, you as the writer want to show off your knowledge and you give a list of 30 different, 37 different teas <laughs> that they can, they can order. Very cool details for some people. <laughs> Most people are gonna be like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you do that over and over and over again. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean every single person right. won't care. Right. But a lot of people are there for the story. Yeah. So unless unless later the tea that they chose becomes an important part of the story. Yeah. Then leave that out. Uh, two choices, right? Johan the Bard likes these two types of tea and they have trouble deciding between the two. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a couple of small details. You're, you're characterizing Johan as someone who has trouble choosing. You're, you're doing work there. Mm -hmm. Get the details, a couple of details. Yeah. So details matter, but if they don't matter, don't put them in. Yeah. Mm. And knowing whether they matter or not is your job mm. in the long run. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I like it. Okay, so along those same lines, reality matters, unless it doesn't. 
So verisimilitude should be a guiding factor in your designing of a world sure. up to a point. You have to decide, are the rules of physics going to apply? Are the rules of geography and sociology and linguistics, etc., are are the things that we know as a society, as scientists, as philosophers, are, are, is it going to hold true or isn't it? Hmm. To what degree do you need to make the world real? If you go break away from reality, does doing so make the world and the story more interesting? or just confusing. Right. So those are those are important things you have to decide. Are you going to be very scientific in your meteorology and geography, right? There there in our world there aren't any swamps next to blank. Hmm. But in this world there is. So this world is terrible. Right. <laughs> yeah. How many times have you heard a player say that? Probably not often. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, it doesn't matter to the reader if your world is scientifically correct. Now, if you blatantly break the law of gravity, there needs to be a reason why, right. because we all understand that things fall downward toward the larger mass. Right. Uh, right. So if you break that, then there should be a reason and it should be important to the story. Well, it's funny but you say that because when, when you talked about breaking rules, the first thing I thought of was crouching tiger, hidden dragon and, and how it captures that beautiful wushu concept of like you can bounce off walls and spring up a wall and do these amazing flips and soar through the sky and fight on bamboo trees. And that's so beautiful. Right. And so evocative. And, and now it's part of that setting and it, and every mm -hmm. once you buy into it, you're totally there. Right. And mm -hmm. it makes sense. Yep. And then if it's a role playing game, <laughs> your mm -hmm. rules need yeah. to apply to that. Yeah. Uh, and the final bit of advice and warning I will give is other people, other tips I've seen, you know, world building tips are often derived from looking at how Tolkien built worlds, or how George Lucas built worlds, hmm. or how Gene Roddenberry built worlds. And the worlds that they built were not built for role-playing game hmm. support. Hmm. Right? The world they built was for fictional support <laughs> and movie support and television support. Yeah. So if you fall back on the world building for other media, you may be missing stuff that you need for building a world for a role-playing game. Yeah, it's a great point. So if we jump forward now, now we're going to talk about world-building for specifically for a tabletop role-playing game. While you're building the world, you always have to keep in mind the rules of the game that you're building it for. What do the rules themselves tell you about the world? And how much do you need to change the rules by going with the type of world building that you want to do? That should be your, your tent post 
keeping in mind. If we're building a world for D&D 5th edition, there are some assumptions. Right. Survival after third level is hard to challenge <laughs> when you can cast good berry and you can cast right create water. So that's going to unless you plan to change the way the rules work yeah. determine your world building. Mm -hmm. Uh what's a what's a different game that you can think of that might uh change the way worlds are looked at or worlds are built i mean recently you know one that brings just recent discussions that we've had around the lethality and say blade runner right like that uh i was surprised there wasn't more emphasis in the game on sort of the medical system mm -hmm. that you would have to have for blade runners if really every time you go out you could get a critical hit and end up in some serious trauma case. There should be like medevac rules and, and remote action rules for how you, you know, participate from the hospital bed and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And we talked about uh, Alien, right? Mm -hmm. The game Alien recently and sort of that being built on first a one particular story. Yeah. When I open the game and look at it, and I see a, the history that is supposed to be behind the game, it sort of doesn't match, hmm. right? The, the rules that I'm looking at about building the character and uh, surviving and shooting xenomorphs doesn't always tie in. Now, I'm only looking at the starter set, right, so maybe right. there's there's more there but you know it's that sort of thing that needs to connect all the way around mm -hmm. uh, all parts of the rules need to uh, correspond to all parts of the world and make each other better lift each other up yeah. uh, so you cannot separate world building from storytelling and game design when you're designing a world for a role-playing game uh, you need to keep in mind what we talked about in the last segment, which with factions is where are the characters and the players looking? Wherever they are looking, wherever their focus and their spotlight is shining, that's what you need to build the most. That's Things point. that are outside of that, you can leave hazy mm -hmm. with the understanding that if they turn their head and look there, you better <laughs> be ready to fill it in. That's a, that I can think of an example there, which is Eclipse Phase, uh, which is a transhuman thing, right? Where you download mm -hmm. your personality into different bodies and things like that. It has this world of megacorps and whatever's and governments, and, but that stuff's totally on the periphery and you're working for this faction doing stuff. And so that's a great example where, you know, there is a chapter that talks about that. But it's not the mm -hmm. focus of the game, and so it is left a little hazy, and it does, it's not a part of your adventures. Versus in Shadowrun, mm -hmm. as technology, Renraku, right? We <laughs> Seder Krupp, we, we, we learn to memorize those because that is front and center. They are the powerful entities driving everything, and often behind the scenes of any particular adventure. So you got to know them, and, and they have to be there explained. Yeah. And so going back to that detail thing, right, the details that you want to work with the most are the things that the characters will be interacting with the most. Mm. 
So, you know, knowing the names of the potion maker, who is the only place to get healing potions from, is going to be more important even than the political leader of the region <laughs> who the characters might never yeah. interact with. Doesn't mean you don't know the name of the you know king or the queen or the lord or the lady, uh, but you don't need to fill in the details. The, mm -hmm. the potion maker who right, is going to give them their antitoxins and their healing potions, that's someone that you wanna put some detail into uh, mm -hmm. when you're building the world. And so that gets to the next topic, which is top-down versus bottom-up design or inside-out versus or outside-in versus inside-out. Hmm. So what does that mean? It means bottom-up is where you focus on only the things that the characters are going to interact with first at the micro level. So if they start the adventure yeah, in a tea house, you want to know the name of the tea house, who works at it, those things that the characters are going to interact with. You don't need to know the trade routes mm -hmm. of the seven kingdoms. Right. You might not even need to know the seven kingdoms. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to start at that bottom, at that inside level. Can I, can I just start and say... And work your way up. It's yeah. hilarious. Merrick Blackman's been doing a bunch of blog entries about old classic adventures, and some of them, especially in the Immortal series, do this where they will tell you all of this backstory, none of which you get to really use in the adventure, or most mm -hmm. of which you don't. And it's fascinating how they'll tell you, yeah, all these different empires and the whatevers, and that's great if you can figure out how to use that, but you may not use it in a particular adventure, and yet it's all kind of there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah uh, when I was running Living Greyhawk, to my region of Keoland, I got an adventure in that I had to edit. <laughs> and the first page and a half, so two columns, right? One column, another column, and then a third column on the next page was the backstory of the villain. <laughs> and it literally started 10,000 years ago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this is a lot of information about what happened over these 10,000 years to this, mm -hmm. the, the, the big, bad, evil creature. It's a lot of information. Will it be relevant to anything that the players interact with? And the answer was not, uh, not an iota, mm -hmm. not one smidge of that backstory mattered at all to what the players had to do, which was basically march into the forest and kill this creature. There wasn't any historical reenactments, uh, ghostly thing. There wasn't a puzzle that you needed to know the history. My backstory is 10,000 years and I was killed by adventurers who didn't bother to learn it. <laughs> yes. Not only didn't bother to learn it, had no way no to No way learn. to, yeah. That's my but favorite. No way to, That's the no best. Way to interact with when them. the players will never have a reason to know this thing, but somehow it got into the product. Oh. Mm -hmm. And and it's a it's a storytelling uh, it's it's a primal storytelling urge. I do not begrudge the person who wrote that, sure. and I do not begrudge anyone who has that tendency, because it is in our very DNA mm -hmm. to want to 
if you're a storyteller, to want to start at in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And to be to have that removed from us would remove any storytelling impulses from us. Mm. But we need to, uh, you know. Yeah. Serve the audience and the purpose and all that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So uh, hmm. so I feel everybody out there who says, <laughs> oh, but when I was in the MFA program, we would have open mics where people would read their works in progress. And I swear that at least 40% of the stuff that the fiction writers who wrote longer pieces or even shorter pieces would start with is like this biblical in the beginning kind of stuff because you do need to create the world with words, but you need to create the world in which we are hearing the story. No, I mean, I'm the kind of designer who, if someone says to me, you know, like, hey, do something for, you know, the Temple of Elemental Evil, for return, return to the return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, I'll go, great, let me go, uh, you know, brush up on the mm-hmm. Battle of Emerity Meadows. Right. And it's like, why? You know, but that is where my brain wants to go. And, and fortunately, over time, you know, and with the help of good kind people, I've learned, like, you, you know, you may, if you want to do that, fine. But the right. product must serve the end goal of whatever it is. And probably you won't use any of that. You could use it to help you set the tone and the color so that it all links yeah. together nicely. Yeah. But, and and that, that's something that we're going to get into in a bit mm-hmm. is the tone cool. and the atmosphere and and prompts mm. for helping you build, which is different than the final product of the the setting or the world and that you've built. I want to add you. You said a really nice thing that that um, when you when you were at, at Game Hole last year and you did a seminar on world building, one of the things that I really like from you and Joe Rosso talking about was the idea of top down, bottom up. The idea of like, do you start with the cosmos and the gods, right? Like how everything was formed, right? That's way top. Or do you yeah. start with, you know, here's this village and the immediate threats that the characters are going to deal with and, and what their life is like. And that's mm-hmm. such a great, that whole like where, and you, you know, you can do a bit of both, but, but those mm-hmm. are, you, it leads to really different outcomes. Uh, and, and so it's important to think about what the point of the product is as to wh- where you should start and, and how much time yeah. to devote on any of those. Yeah. And that brings around a great point, which is most of the time, top down versus bottom up is you're going to do both Hmm. for a role playing game because the rules themselves require you to do certain things top, whereas the adventure, the stories that the DM and the players will be going through require you to start down at the bottom. Hmm. So what you are best served by doing most of the time is starting at the bottom mm-hmm. and saying, all right, in this campaign as the DM, I'm, I want to start this way or as the adventure designer for other DMs to buy and run, I'm going to start at the bottom and I'm going to build my way up until I get to a point where I have to answer an important question. Hmm. Once I hit that point where I have to answer an important question, I will jump to the top, deal with that. Once I've dealt with that, I can see the ramifications of where it's going to come out with that in the story. Then I'll jump back to the bottom and continue till I hit another roadblock because I need to know what the what the gods are. Right. Right. Okay. now I will do that. Now I need to know 
what the kingdoms are named. Mm-hmm. All right, and I will jump up and do that. But always thinking, when you're down here, working from the bottom up, always be thinking of the larger picture. Then when you jump up to the larger picture, always keep thinking about how it's going to (laughs) manifest itself through the details of the adventure and the micro settings that you're creating within the world. That's that's a great point. Yeah, like, like if you're thinking about a dune world, right? Like you might start with your house, you're on Arrakis, this is what matters. You don't talk about mm-hmm. the other houses until you actually need to, because if you started with here are the major houses, like, oh, I'm already, I'm already lost, right? Like, and if you tried to explain mm-hmm. that to your players at a gaming session, but it's not gonna come up, right? So you don't, generally we don't, we only think of two houses until the others come in here and there, right? But, but it's generally just two that we're focused on, yours and the enemy, right? <laughs> It's it's very very true. the The last part of this is uh, sometimes writing a world in a certain way means changing the rules of the game, hmm. and that's okay. You just have to then think of the ramifications of what does this mean if I change the rules so that X becomes an important factor in the game where it usually isn't. Or usually they have this resource, but I'm going to remove that resource to make this setting and the stories that are told in that setting more interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to be a tension that you have to deal with if you choose a specific game and then write a slightly different setting within that game. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I want to talk real quick about Microscope, which is a role-playing game that is a world-building tool. Uh, I've done more world-building as professionally in the last eight weeks than probably in the last 20 years combined. (laughs) Wow. Building a world from the ground up because I'm working on several different projects that just happen to be doing exactly that. The only exception would be working on Aurora, Age of Desolation, uh, where I built that uh, outline for the world and other people did it. But what I noticed is there's a game called Microscope by Ben Robbins, and it provides a nice guide for and a structure for collaborative world building and then role-playing some things within the world that you just created. And as I stepped through the the uh, steps of Microscope, I realized that without even knowing it, when I was building Aurora, I was sort of doing the same thing. What Microscope does is it has you as a group create a one-sentence big picture for your world. What is your world about in very vague terms? So Star Trek would be, Right. Perfected humanity reaches out into the stars. Mm-hmm. Right? Star Trek is uh, Star Wars would be, you know, galactic empire versus plucky rebels mm-hmm. in a galactic uh, war. Harry Potter would be right. Uh, young wizards in a world of non-magic dominance you know, tries to survive, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start building your history in these big chunks of time and what happens what can what can we say about that so the dark ages and then the renaissance Mm -hmm. and then the enlightenment (laughs) would be big periods of time Mm -hmm. within those times you create events that are important to the world And within those events, you can make scenes which show actual things playing out around those events. And it's just a really cool, I mean, that's the 
22nd. Uh, uh-huh. But but it's a great way not to necessarily build an art, a fantasy RPG world from scratch, but to at least start to get those topics. Yeah. And doing it as a group can be a lot of fun. That's great. I've never done Microscope. That's awesome. Great to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to we'll have to try it sometime. Ooh, yeah. It's a full night. It's a full night of, of work. So, uh, <laughs> well, but it, but it a smaller version of that is we talked about fate, right? And how fate will often right. you know declare aspects and things like that. Those are small ways to little microcosms of capture of the setting, which can be really great too. Yeah, and a lot of fate games also have you build. Um, mini settings yeah. where your characters hold sway. Um, so that, that's another, yeah, get at that. So the last thing I want to talk about is showing how these challenges work with a real life example. Awesome. And so I want to talk about Surviving Strange Hollow. So at the end of 2023, I joined this project with a group of the publishing company called Accidental Cyclops. And Mikey and Jason from from Accidental Cyclops came to me and showed me art from an artist named Emily Hare. Hmm. Now, normally when you're making a role playing game, you get the idea, you write the world, you write the rules or adopt the rules. And then at the end of the whole process, you're like, oh, yeah, we need art. Here are some art briefs based on the things we've created. Off they go to the artist and, and we're good. So doing it this way, completely in the opposite way of building a world and building a game or structuring a rule set to support a game was hugely interesting and challenging for me. So I looked at this art and it was adorable and it was ethereal and it was mysterious and it was foreboding at the same time. And you say, how can it be adorable and foreboding? It seems to be at odds. And it is. It is at odds. But like wild animals are, even if they're cute, they can be dangerous. Right. You can see the biggest, burliest of strong men walk down the street and a chihuahua comes at them (laughs) and they flinch. Right. Because this little thing, you can't control it. And it does have teeth and it does have claws. Yeah. uh, And it can't probably kill you. But it just it's that natural reaction. And so that's what that's what I noticed in this art. It, It captures sort of the terror of nature as well as the comedy of it all at the same time if you're listening right now just go to get.accidentalcyclops.com and you can see the pictures that that are neat and like there's this you know sort of funny mushroom covered creature that looks funny but also has these big jagged teeth and and yeah it presents that question of is this thing actually my friend or not Yeah. And what is it? What can it do? If it's if any creature has survived for this long, it has defenses. Right. And so what is its defense? Hmm. And when it comes at you all (laughs) cute and happy, right, a little toad with a big mushroom on it. What do you do? You know, your reaction might be to run away. Okay, your reaction might be just to kill it. Well, what then what defenses does it have? So it's it's all this stuff going through my head as I'm looking at just the art. So 
what the challenge is, has been, and will continue to be through the Kickstarter and beyond, will be to imagine and describe this world that Emily has started to create through her art. But, uh, you know, as as we've been talking about this whole session, what's just as important as capturing the artist's vision of the world is figuring out what stories and what challenges are going to resonate with game masters. What are the players going to want to interact with and what should the results and consequences of, of those interactions be? Choosing to set it with 5e rules automatically means certain things. Mm -hmm. So we have to take that into account as we build the world. And so what changes are we going to make to 5e rules to capture sort of the, the survival harshness of this realm, along with the comedy of it, along with the sort of goofiness of it the the sort of i i think of it as like heart of darkness on this side and monty python on this side <laughs> right and those are two completely opposite things right mm -hmm. apocalypse now for those of you yeah. who watch movies and don't read books right <laughs> this sort of going into the unknown and it's it's not good mm -hmm. versus you know the the comedy of these cute little creatures are probably going to kill you in one way or another if you're not very, very careful. It's the killer bunny. Yeah, uh, right. Right, but but more serious mm -hmm. while still keeping the sort of goofiness of it. Hmm. Uh, so all of that is in progress as we speak, as we hired writers to write fiction mm -hmm. based on this, and then we're going to meld the rules we already have with the fiction that they're writing and Emily's art and sort of build this setting as well as mm -hmm. building the experience of gameplay uh, that will come out of all of these different uh, sources coming together into one coherent, I pray, uh, <laughs> if I'm doing my job well, product. I'm sure it's very coherent and very cool. Uh, I've I can't talk about what I saw recently, but I saw something you'd written, and I loved it because it was vintage. You you, you hand it in, you're like, I don't know if this is any good or needs to be completely rewritten. And I read it, and I go, Jesus. And I read it to my family because I'm like, look, look <laughs> here are the words that that Sean just put together for this concept, and it was so good. And it, and it had to do with this kind of idea of like world world building and things players can use and it was so good um, so I'm sure that this is great I can't wait to see it and you've got a lot of other really cool team members on this project too so yeah we, we've brought in Ed Greenwood uh, Elisa Teague uh, Brian Steele mm -hmm. Dale Kingsmill James Hake and Aaron Roberts working on the fiction and world building side of wow. things and we're going to have more people coming in, but we have Dan Dillon, some of you may have heard of him, coming in to help out with the rules side of things, creating new rules and adjusting 5e rules to fit this. And it's it's going to wow. be so much work, uh, and it, but it's going to be a work of love. And I'm just excited 
my blood is gushing just <laughs> thinking about uh, getting a chance to work on this. So uh, what I hope to do through Accidental Cyclops is sort of have a bit of a designer journal mm -hmm. um, to, cool. to both update through the Kickstarter and beyond to sort of share this process and help people who may be trying to build something on their own see some of the pitfalls and some of the challenges and, and help them get over them. That's great. Well, I, I love the concept of world building. Uh, this was very helpful to me to think about it and talk to you about it. So thanks for that. And I look forward to seeing how you do the world building through accidental Cyclops and the Surviving Strange Hollow project. So thanks, Sean. Thank you. And more importantly, thank you out there for listening. I hope this has been enlightening and entertaining in one way or another. Uh, and we want to thank specifically the people who support our Patreon. Um, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. And to our Master of Dungeons supporters, thank you. To our Master of Realm supporters, you are in our show notes and in our hearts. And the Masters of the Multiverse, well, y'all get a shout out right now. We'll go from the bottom up this time with Chris Webster, Xavier Waziak, Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Trace, Krishna Simonse, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Robert Pasley, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Mighty Zeus, Mike Olson, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, the Math Magician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon.com, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, Lou Anders from Lazy Wolf Studios, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron, again, you can go to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. If you get a chance, you can also give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or subscribe to us via YouTube. So, Teos, where can people find you specifically? Moi, you can find me at alphastream.org. Sean, where are you hiding? You can find me on all of the social media places at Sean Merwin. And the podcast itself is at Mastering D&D on all of those same places. And we're also on YouTube at uh, the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, we've built some worlds, Teos. What are we going to do now? You know, on our Discord, someone recommended the delicious dungeon anime cartoon mm -hmm. on uh, Netflix. It's wild, and I'm contemplating how I would write up that world. Okay, okay. I'm, uh, I've heard about that recently as well, and <laughs> I'm going to go get me some uh, ogre brains. Ooh, I bet those are great when you pan fry them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like mom used to make. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>